police relations in America. They appear to be at an all-time low. Is that really true? Personally, I don't think so. Today's guest, Tim Jones, we speak about just that, community relations between citizens and police officers. We've had history of some bad things, but through training, we can make things right. That's what Tim Jones does. He trains police officers. I'm super excited. Let's get into this episode of Dead America. Hello, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you may be around this wild, wacky, and sometimes disturbing world of ours. Yes, that's the intro to the Mindset Podcast, a weekly attempt to open eyes and shedding light on what's really going on in the world, all done by ripping apart the media madness that masquerades as news. Join me, Gareth Davis, every Sunday on the Mindset Podcast. You can find the show on all major podcasting services such as iTunes, Stitcher, and so on. Or you can go directly to the main Mindset website. That's www.mindsetcentral.com. Check out the Mindset Podcast. Bring your curiosity, your opinions, and a sense of humor. And remember that some worldviews are stranger than others. To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are with Tim Jones. He is half of the podcast, The Police and the People. He also is the owner of Granite State Police Counseling. Tim, could you please introduce yourself and let people know just a little bit about you, please? Sure, sure. So, um, first, my, my name is Tim Jones. I hail from the great state of New Hampshire, Granite State, uh, hence the, the name of my uh, law enforcement training company. A little bit about me, uh, you may actually detect a little bit of a southern accent that comes out occasionally. I was born and raised in the panhandle of Florida, right near the uh, right near Pensacola uh, on the uh, Florida-Alabama line. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I joined the Navy and uh, ultimately became a, a deep-sea diver for the Navy. I uh, went to dive school out in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and then was stationed in Hawaii, and uh, great turn of events there. I, one, I loved it. I was in paradise. And number two, that's where I met my wife, uh, was, was in Hawaii. Um, I also worked a little bit in San Diego on a submarine tender. Um, then in 1995, um, I decided not to stay in the Navy, and I wanted to pursue law enforcement. Uh, I'll tell you that, that what 
kind of clinched it for me was my wife and I were downtown San Diego and this car came screaming by us, this flying. And I remember thinking, what if this jerk driving this fast? And then not long after these two San Diego PD cruisers were, were chasing it. It was a pursuit that I had just, just went right by me. And I said, that looks pretty cool. I want to do that. So that kind of sensed it for me. Um, so I, we decided uh, when I got out of the Navy to move to New Hampshire, that's where my wife is from, and uh, we put down roots here. So I uh, went to college. I got my associate's degree in criminal justice, um, and then I started uh, law enforcement work in 1996 um, for a small town uh, called Litchfield. I worked there for two years and then was recruited by a much, much larger agency um, called Londonderry, and I uh, finished out my career in Londonderry. So while uh, a police officer, I you know, I've kind of ran the gambit. I was, of course, a patrol officer for many years. Um, I was even on a SWAT team for almost seven years. And um, I got uh, promoted to detective. So I worked uh, investigations for about three and a half years, then promoted to sergeant, uh, worked as a patrol sergeant for a few years, and then also as a detective sergeant. And then in 2010, I was promoted to lieutenant. And I finished out my career as a lieutenant. Um, so in 2013, I started a law enforcement training company uh, that you uh, mentioned earlier, Granite State Police Career Counseling, um, or GSPCC is what we call it. And, you know, I, I started off with one curriculum, which was helping people learn how to become police officers and, and navigate the testing process. And then we expanded it to leadership, and then it just I realized that there was just a need for, for more robust training, um, particularly in New England. So I just began to build or bring in people who, who had um, different skill sets to create different curriculum. In uh, 2018, um, one of my, by the name of John Stokel, um, approached me about being a partner with the company. So we came up with a, with a figure for him to buy in, and he's now a, a 50-50 partner in the company. And uh, he was also my partner on the podcast. Um, and so um, when you hear, he's got that smooth, silky voice, you know, uh, he's, you know he's really made for uh, for podcasting. But um, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, we don't really do the podcast anymore because of just time constraints. Um, you know, we're running this company and um, he's a director for a police academy and I uh, do quite a bit of teaching at a uh, college here in New Hampshire. So. Uh, we're just, we're just, our time is very limited. So we had to kind of cut the, the podcast out, which was too bad. So a little bit, a little more about me and uh, just so people can get to know me on a, on a personal basis. Um, I'm, I'm a drummer. I've been drumming since I was uh, about 12 years old and I still do it. Uh, I've been married for 28 years. Uh, I have two kids. Uh, my oldest is 25. She lives down in Massachusetts. She works for a 3D printing company, and my son, uh, who's 22, just graduated from the University of New Hampshire, and uh, we have a dog and a cat, and uh, we live on a nice plot here in New Hampshire, five acres with a pond in the back, and uh, lots of deer and, and wildlife, and um, life is good. How was that? <laughs> That's beautiful, Tim. Uh, Well-rounded life, you know, it sounds nice, but it wasn't nice all the time, was it? No, no. You always have hiccups in life, you know, absolutely. Um, but, you know, what 
what I think is what uh, makes Bill's character is how you deal with adversity and get through these hard times in life. Sir. That is right. You know, the reason I have you on the podcast mainly is the police relationship in America. It's It's kind of in a bad situation right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is ignorance. People mm-hmm. don't understand the law. And mm-hmm. at this point in time, I'm wondering if some police officers really understand the law. And since you train police officers, you're a great candidate to talk about all these subjects. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the policy and practice of police officers is is it a standardized training great question so um yes and no it depends on which area you're talking about so the way police training is typically um, structured and uh, the oversight is each state is in charge of their own uh, what they call a post, which is a police officer standards and training. And, you know, they all do it differently, you know. Um, but what they typically do is they, their main line or their main responsibility is to set standards. This is what police are required to do. These are the standards they're required to maintain in order to uh, keep their certifications as police officers. Um, and if there's ever any kind of a violation of these standards, they may have to go before the, the post and, um, and and have hearings on whether they're going to pull their certifications or not. That does happen. Um, so, but within each state, what they're requiring for training and regulating for training is going to be different for each state. Um, you know, for example, probably a, a really uh, hot topic one right now is uh, defensive tactics, you know, the hands-on stuff that you do when people resist arrest uh, and things of that nature. So um, this, at least for New Hampshire, they say, okay, we're going to train you on what we think is acceptable tactics in that. And then if you deviate beyond that, we're going to review it. Maybe you had to do it or maybe you're, you went outside boundaries, you know, um, you know, if you crack someone in the head with a flashlight, that is not taught. However, if if it was a life or death situation, you know, it may be different. Um, but um, but as far as other types of training, the use of force stuff is definitely heavily regulated. <laughs> um, um, but when it comes to other things like, you know, interview and interrogation or um, leadership and things of that nature, it's kind of a free for all. Does that answer your question, Ed? Yeah. You know, basically, that's that's one of the difficult areas in America right now is the training. And I really feel that we need to get a standardized set of training where every police officer must do these practices. Mm-hmm. It, it's and And I'm not a police officer. I don't know how police officers work and I know they're under a lot of stress all the time but standardized practices uh, standard operating practice for everybody is always a good idea in my belief Mm -hmm. what what do you think about that 
I completely agree. And there's actually an organization. Um, there actually, it's actually a private organization. Uh, it's called Kalia, uh, C-A-L-E-A. And I don't ask me what it stands for. I don't remember. <laughs> but what what they do is what they it was just it started as these police chiefs that got together and said exactly what you're saying. We need to standardize basically policies and procedures which cover training and 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 make it the same all over the country and and exactly what you said and they call it accreditation so mm. um departments um if you ever hear a police department brag hey we're fully accredited that means they've gone through this process to be accredited and what that brings to the table is uh, and well in order to get credited they have to meet these standards. They have to show Kalia that, hey, here are our policies and here's what we do. Here are our practices. And if it meets the qualifications, then they say, okay, you are accredited. And it's um, it's actually a big, big feather in, in the hat of an agency because it's not easy to get accredited. There's a lot of work behind it and there's a lot of work to maintain it. Um, but here's the limiting factor is that it's very expensive. Um, there's a there's a pretty big cost to it, and of course, it, you know, in small agencies that just don't have the funding, it's just not easy for them to do it. So I would I would say that I agree with you that we need to have the standardization, but we need to maybe take a step back and look at organizations like Kalia and maybe the ways they can make it more affordable um, for smaller departments. Yes, I I agree. The police are out there, you know especially right now, they've got to be like a nervous individual. It's, <laughs> it's one of those jobs that it's touchy in all areas. How often do police officers deal with post-traumatic stress disorder? And is there a mental health evaluation that goes along with this? That's a great question, Ed. So, Ironically enough, our company um, just launched a class called Critical Incident Management. And um, this this guy, Rob Eccleston, called me out of the blue and said, hey, um, I want to talk to you about a possible class. And, and it's it's for people that, uh, for police officers that have gone through certain incidents and maybe are suffering from PTSD because he did. And it actually, it ended his career a little early. And... Um, he says, I want to help. And he's, um, he's very uh, active in with the state legislature to, to get uh, uh, certain laws passed. One that recognizes that PTSD is something that police officers can be diagnosed with and that now their insurance and, and such can help deal with that. So that they don't have to pay out of pocket. Um, and, and he approached me about putting on a class. And uh, so we sat down and hashed it out, and um, the enrollments are going through the roof. Um, it's, it's, it's really nice to see that uh, police departments here in New Hampshire and, and in Maine and Vermont are interested in going to this. So um, to answer your question, yes, it does happen. Um, you know, when you um, – I'll tell you about a friend of mine. When he first um, got on the job, uh, we went to the academy together. And um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't get too graphic with it, but he went to a um, an accident, a car accident on the highway. So, you know, highways, 
Highway accidents are typically not good because of the speeds involved, right? You know, you're just going yeah. fast highway. So, and this was a multi, multiple car accident, and um, and what had happened was there were two children in the car, and um, I, I don't believe they were wearing their seatbelts, and one was ejected, and the car ended up crushing the little boy, uh, and then the little girl, he said, when they got there, was kind of hanging out the window, you know, and it just, it just really, really uh, stuck in his, in his mind, you know, and, um, and he still thinks about it to this day. And, um, you know, and that is a form of PTSD, you know, when you, when you see that, when you see death like that, um, or even, you know, more so when you were in a, in a shooting situation where you have to defend your life or someone else, you know, that is traumatic for cops. Despite what the media may make you think, um, I, I don't know a single police officer that gets up every morning and says, I want to go shoot somebody today. Yeah. You know, they're prepared. They train for it and they have the weaponry, um, but they don't want to do it. You don't. Um, I, I've had a couple of situations in my career where my finger was on the trigger and I was glad that I, you know, I had the tactical advantage where I could hesitate, you know, and um, and it and it worked out where I didn't have to. So I, I've never fired my gun uh, in anger uh, in my 20 years of law enforcement. So um, what we I think what we as a country we need to focus on is is making sure that police officers have the resources available um, and and also that they're not stigmatized for for saying, I need help, you know, I'm, I'm going through hard times and I need help. Um, something that New Hampshire is doing now, and I think this is all over the country as well, is they've created these um, incident response or peer incident response units. Um, and so basically it's, there's a, you know, these regions within the state where these police officers have volunteered their time to you know, respond to incidents where police officers are involved in shootings. So they have a peer to talk to, just someone that's like them. And um, also the state has now recognized that even though these these police officers are peers, that whatever is disclosed in their conversations is protected conversations, just like with a therapist or something. So um, that, that, was, that was a good thing as well. So... Uh, I think there's a lot of movement now to help police officers in that realm to, to understand that PTSD is a thing. They do suffer from it, and there's ways to get help. Yes. Yeah, I agree 100%. You, you have to give the support because that's what police officers are actually out there for is to support the community. And yes. if, we, if we're not showing our support back, it, it's not going to work. You know, I, I get mad at police officers all the time, but mm-hmm. still I recognize there's a need for these people, and mm-hmm. if they weren't there, our life would be hell. So we really have to work together, especially the community relations. Uh, back in 1971, they had a project, the project, and it was called The People and the Police. And that sort of formed this recognition that the police and the people really need to work together. 
Mm -hmm. Is there still an active form of the project going on today? I've never heard of that, Ed. Um, so I guess the answer is no, <laughs> at least uh, not that I've ever seen. Um, I know that it's called CGA 225 back yeah. in 1971. Oh, I've never heard of that. Wow. I'm going to write that down. Um, because maybe I can um, talk about that with my students. So I, I can tell you, though, that, you know, in the 1980s, you know, the, the crack epidemic happened, right? And there was a lot of pressure put on law enforcement then to, to really ratchet down this because of the, you know, the perceived issue with it. Plus, it was very addictive, and when people get really addicted, they um, – if they don't have money, then they go out and they break into houses, right? And they take your stuff right. to go buy drugs, just like they do with opioids now. Um, so, you know, it was it was getting pretty bad. And plus, there was a lot of murders. I don't, I'm not sure if you recall, but especially in the South and Florida, there was just a lot of gang wars and, and mafia wars over this this new drug, and um, and it was just it was just a lot of death coming out of it. So. There's a lot of pressure put on law enforcement. So law enforcement kind of developed this zero tolerance mentality, right? We're going to go out there, no questions asked. We're arresting people, you know, kicking butt, taking names. There was even cruisers that have that on the side of it, zero tolerance, you know. And um, maybe it helped, I don't know, um, in certain respects. But what they failed to look at, though, was that when you just – go out there in this kind of, you know, thuggish type mentality, jackboot, then you, you basically destroy your relationship with the community. You know, they just see you as these jackbooted thugs and, and that's all. So then once that was recognized uh, in the late 80s and 90s, you started to hear about community policing. And this is where we, we, we realized we needed to heal these wounds and get back into the communities and let people know that the police are humans and we're there to help. And that kind of opened the door um, for different programs, like, like what you're talking about, um, for police and community relations. Um, a lot of police departments, uh, larger ones, will have actually police, uh, public relations divisions, you know, where people um, go out and do different things with the community, you know. Um, I had a, a criminal justice professor, though, one time back in the 90s tell me that she didn't agree with that. She thought that was um, the wrong way to look at it, that you shouldn't have certain people designated to be your PR people, that everybody should be your PR people. All officers should be involved with public relations, not just a certain division. But I can understand what the departments were doing. You know, they were, you know, doing, you know, bike rodeos and, and things of that nature and, and, and giving out bicycle helmets to kids and things like that. So um, I think it was all a positive move in, in the right direction. Um, um, what I think, though, that to get back to what you're talking about, to kind of bridge this gap between the people and the police is a couple of things. One is the police need to be transparent. They need to be very open about who they are and what they do, why they do what they do, which is why we created that podcast. And, you know, maybe police chiefs and police administrators need to have routine meetings with people so they can explain things. You know, they can come in with questions. Hey, you know, 
I, you know, I was doing 10 over and the officer gave me a ticket. I don't understand why. And then, you know, kind of explain, you know, maybe what the circumstances were. And at least you're informing the public. They, they still may not like you, but at least they're, they're not liking you uh, from an informed perspective, uh, hopefully. Um, that's one thing I think that is important. So we, we, you just got to be open. Like my, my department um, at the – basically the, the kind of – we got some pushback on this from some of our uh, police administrators. But our chief said, I, I'm putting all of our policies on our website, every single one of them. And they like there were some officers that were saying, well, we don't want to talk about any kind of tactics that we're going to use. And our police chief said, I put them all. They're all going out there because he wanted to be transparent. He wanted everyone to know, hey, you can look up this policy and see why the police did what they did. And, and, and maybe you could even say, hey, I think they violate the policy. So transparency is key. And I think another thing that police departments really need to make sure that they adhere to is the Constitution. I am a constitutionalist. I believe that that document has guided this country through thick and thin. You know, we've gone through some dark times, but it was the Constitution in the end that brought us out of it. Um, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, all of that, segregation. And we need to make sure that we're, the officers are adhering to the Constitution because, you know, that's one of the great things about this country is are your, your rights as a citizen. And it's wrong if the police are out there violating. And um, we need to make sure there's accountability for, for, for officers that do violate these rights. So does that answer your question about the, the kind of bridging that gap between the yeah. police? Yeah. So, you know, that leads back to the officers need to know the law, but also we need to be an informed citizen and yep. we need to know the law, so we're not breaking the law. So I, I really think we need to train not only the officers but community back in mm -hmm. school with the Constitution and civics. You know, yes, we've lost all of these things, and I think we yep. need them back. That's for sure. And you you hit on the trust. People don't trust the police officers anymore. That is. Big. It's key, and we look back to incidences like in the 90s. They're back to back. Uh, there was the 11-day standoff with Ruby Ridge. Mm -hmm. You know, unfortunate. Maybe it could have been avoided if training was different. Mm -hmm. Same with the David Crash thing in Waco, Texas. Yeah. You know that that all could have been handled different and i wonder how much ego really gets involved a lot yeah it, <laughs> it really needs to come down to the training and how how we allow individuals to be accountable for their actions and this is kind of a mentality that people have is it's a good old boys club and mm -hmm. they're going to do what they are going to do and that's unfortunate because i love the constitution i love the rule of law and that's mm -hmm. what people need to recognize we're a republic right. and we are a rule of law if you right. live here you're not free to do whatever you want to do 
Right. You have to know the law and you have to live by it. Correct. I, I don't understand the mentality behind some of the people that uh, I'm a constitutionalist and I can do whatever. Well, that's not what it says. No, yeah, that's more the libertarian type mindset, right? It, right. And, yeah. you know, we've got to bring it back to the center. And that's that's really where we're at. There's such a uh, divide, a polarization in America that we let politics run everything. And yeah, that's that's a yeah. I, I was telling my wife that the other day that it's just it saturated everything. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it saturated this virus. Yeah, you know? um, it just seems like people are now just losing their minds um, because they're choosing a side. You know, whether you have an R or a D in front of your name, and it right. just it boggles my mind. We're all in this together. You know, let's yeah. be sensible about it, and not just you know dig our dig our heels in just because this is what a, one party says we should do. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. You, you also mentioned about you know the egos. Um, that is a big thing. Um, I will tell you that. You know, there are a lot of police officers that that have big egos and um and they don't like, you know, when when people push back. Um, but things are changing now and that's because you know, if if there is any a positive or silver lining in what's going on right now is everything is being recorded now. Yes. Either by a bystander or the person that's being talked to by the police or the police themselves. You know, their body cams are now um, almost ubiquitous, right? So it, it it's kind of like it's feeding into that transparency that I was telling you about. So we can now see um, what what's going on and we can see if officers are being in the way, if they're being bullyish when they're out there or just being jerks. Um, uh, to, to the people and, and making making the situation worse, you know. Yeah, I, I will tell you that every department has these people. Where you're on a scene, maybe you're dealing with someone who's who's intoxicated, and they're they're they were kind of angry when you got there, but you talked to them, and now they've kind of calmed down. And then this officer shows up and gets them riled right back up again. You know. <laughs> We all had those people, and I would cringe sometimes when they would sign off on a call with me. Going, oh, here we go, you know, <laughs> they're going to make it worse. Yeah. So um, those are the officers we got to keep in check, and um, departments need to make sure they they are aware of these of these these guys and uh, and, and and women to um, to keep them in check and and ultimately discipline them or fire them um, if need be because they they can make things uh, worse for agencies. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I received a telephone call from a prisoner that was sent to the Idaho State Mental Hospital, and he reached out to me from the mental hospital, mm -hmm. and he was talking about how the police officer he had interactions with him from previous incidences, but he was allowed to be transported and drugged and uh, basically put in a straitjacket because of an officer's ego. Mm. And basically, he just got released and 
and everything was dropped and uh that was a very interesting case of ego there and mm-hmm. i'm glad that you spoke about ego and every every department has an issue with that yeah so let's touch on data collection there's ois it's officer involved shooting data there's mm-hmm. been a thing lately in the news where i guess there hasn't been a collection of data what is this and why should it be important yeah that's, that's an interesting uh topic so it's funny you know i as a professor um i teach data collection especially in in, in the realm of criminology and i found it very interesting that the 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 main um mechanisms of, of collecting data which is the fbi they have what they call the ucr well actually they're replacing the ucr with something called nibers which is uh, the national incident based incident based reporting system and it's just data collection about from all the police departments in the country and um, they're looking at you know a number of arrests what they're for who, who the perpetrators were and all of that and they take all of this data and, and publish these statistics and that's where anytime you you hear these stats probably uh on the news or whatever they're probably getting it from either the ucr the uniform crime reports or snipers and i was really surprised that officer involved shootings weren't part of that they are now um that has changed um as i understand it that the fbi is now collecting that data but yeah for 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 up until recently it was just each state kind of had their own data and the the FBI didn't really seem to be interested in that uh in the past but they are now so it is being collected um we probably won't see um like uh, statistics from it for a couple of years it takes a while for these things to shake out so um that'll be something we see down the road um i did read an article one time where this guy did it in florida specifically in florida this was before the uh the FBI started collecting the OIS data and he went through and 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 collected it all but it was a lot of work he had to call basically every police department and not all of them were willing to cooperate because it was you know he was a media figure and um and he and he kind of coalesced some data out there and um and it kind of matched what's going on around the rest of the country so it wasn't anything um too um surprising when i looked at the information another subject i want to touch on is mm-hmm. militarization of the police and yeah. weaponizing the police we see this build up of armored vehicles um swat really has taken off and mm-hmm. I recognize there is a use for that type of unit. Yep. But how how do you feel has it been used properly? That's a great question. Um and, and as you and I were talking uh before we started recording about my perspective and, and I'll bring this up now in that, you know, I worked in New Hampshire. Um uh, we have fairly relatively low crime rates in New Hampshire. Um I, I was just saying that they probably have three times as many 
probably even more than that, uh, homicides in major cities than in the entire state of New Hampshire. So this is my perspective on that, uh, to answer your question. So let, let me back up a little bit of history. So I'm sure you recall the, uh, the in California, the Hollywood shootout. Yes. So that <laughs> yes. really opened the eyes of law enforcement who said, holy cow, we are outgunned. Um, if you recall, they were these two two men kept an army of police officers at bay for a considerable amount of time because they were wearing armor and they had very high caliber guns and they could shoot from a distance and do a lot of damage. Whereas the Hollywood Police Department had nine millimeter Berettas and right. shotguns with buckshot in it. And when they were trying to keep their distance and shoot these guys. Um, they just weren't really, because it was just bouncing off their armor and just, you know what I mean? They just weren't really able. I think the other guys, their, their weaponry was fully automatic as well. And so it was just amazing what two men could do, um, on that day. And it, the law enforcement community said, all right, we need to, we need to be more prepared. So that's when you started to see, um, rifles replace shotguns. Um, shotguns have their place, um, but as you know, a rifle, particularly like an AR-15, you can you can shoot longer distances more accurately, um, and it, it could possibly deal with an issue like that from, from a distance. Um, so we started to see more of those um, enter the police world, into the cruisers, and into the training realm, so that officers knew how to use them. Um, and then we also started to see the, the armored vehicles, like you said. And I will say my my uh, SWAT team that I was on, which was a regional team, it was made up of multiple agencies, we we obtained uh, an armored vehicle. Um, it was a company called Bearcat, I believe. And it's this, this, this big old giant, it's basically like a troop carrier, but it's armored, right? So you can put your guys in the back. And, um, but... One of the, the the main missions that we saw it for, or it, it, its use, was rescues. So picture, if you will, uh, a police officer is walking up to a call at a house, maybe a domestic, and he gets shot before in the front yard. So now he's lying in the front yard bleeding. And if, if you run up and try to get him, you're possibly going to get shot too, right? So what we saw it for is we could take this armored vehicle and put it in between the bad guy and the person we needed to rescue, and it gave us a shield, just big giant shield to, to get that person out of there. And that's how we trained with it. We never really saw it as anything else. We, we weren't practicing like ramming anything or it was strictly to put, to get, if, if we were under fire, we could put people in a situation, but we could also rescue people at the same time. So. That was kind of how we trained with it. Um, as far as um, it, it, it's misuse, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know. I haven't seen too many articles. I, I think what it is is just the optics of it, and it just looks militarized. You know, it looks like the U.S. Army is rolling in there, right. and and just the optics of it are not bad. Are not good. I'm sorry. Um, what is is it caused any? undo deaths or any of that nature. I don't know. I don't have the data on that to tell you that it has. Um, I'm not necessarily, my personal opinion is I'm not necessarily against its use in, in specific situations. Right. What I 
But I think police departments should, you know, be concerned with is the optics of it and only pull it out when you really have to. You know, you don't don't pull it out when there's just a, you know, a, I don't want to say a simple domestic. I don't want to try to downplay those calls. Right. It can be right. pretty dangerous. However, you know, you you don't want to that, – that shouldn't be your patrol vehicle is, is an armored vehicle. So that's kind of my perspective on it. But if I can, I will say I, I have noticed another trend, and it's um, – I, I, I'm a traditionalist. You know, I started law enforcement in 96, plus I was in the military, and I'm a big – I'm a big advocate of a squared away uniform. I just think it, it it sends a message that you're that you're a squared away police officer. And there's actually been research done that um, there are some perpetrators that have not uh, assaulted police because based on the way they look. If they're in shape, if they're squared away looking, they they're kind of like, yeah, this guy would probably kick my butt, you know, if I tried. <laughs> so, yeah. right. Yeah. So it's that perception. They call it officer presence, right? Right. What I'm seeing now is there, it's like they're getting away from these traditional uniforms and going to these kind of uh, BDUs, battle dress uniform looking things. And um, to me, I just don't like the optics of that. I think it just it's it, it, that to me is more sends a message of militarization um, than the armored cars do, because, again, the armored cars just sit in the parking lot until they're needed. Right. Um, I, 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 I'm an advocate. Or traditional uniforms um, squared away. Um, now I know there's a trend now. Maybe you've noticed that, Ed, where you know most of my career I wore my body under, uh, excuse me, body armor underneath my shirt. And now there's a trend where the body armor goes on the outside. Um, and my my department did this, and I, I, I'll say I liked it because what what it allows for is the officer can, when he's got to do reports or she has to do reports. You can go into the department and take it off. Uh, I'll tell you, they're very hot. You sweat like crazy with those things. They're heavy. And it's kind of nice to relieve yourself. Yeah. You get a call, you can just throw yeah. it on, Velcro it, and you're, and you're out the door. What I don't like with these are the ones that have all of the um, pockets. Something out of Afghanistan, right? It has all the yeah. pockets and, and, and ammo on it and everything, you know. Um, they do make these carriers. They look really nice. They actually match your shirt, and they have just traditional pockets from a distance that you can't even tell. Um, I think that's more of a way to go, in my opinion. Again, I just think that departments need to be careful with how their officers look out there. And, and because, you know, if you look like you're, you know, guarding an embassy in, in um, you know, in Israel, then – People may be less apt to want to come up and talk to you and discuss That's things. A good point. Yes. Yeah. That's a real good point right there. Uh, how you present yourself really determines how you're going to be approached. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another big thing is complaints. I'm guilty of this myself. You know, having a complaint with the officer. You mm-hmm. have a bad day, you get pulled over, and you disagree with the officer. Yep. You know, it's not the place. That officer is to do a duty, and it, it gets sloppy on both sides, the civilian side and the police officer side. Right. I, I had a officer stop me a while back because I was speeding. I didn't think I was at the time, and 
I kind of got a little irritated and I said, I don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. And he says, that's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll see you in court. And he walked off after he handed and he didn't reply that that was really good of that officer. I didn't like it, but you know, I took the time to go back, look at the scene and I realized he was right. And I really, that could have went a different direction if the (laughs) officer would have had an attitude, you know, so really how we approach each other and nobody likes to get stopped but when we approach each other we have to have civil respect for each other and if you have a complaint it's not on the side of the road where that should be handled what's your thought on that you're absolutely right um you know every state has a mechanism where you can um go to court you know you can fight if you fight your uh the, the ticket or the or the arrest or whatever and that's the place to do it okay um i'll tell you that for for your listeners out there if you give the officer a lot of attitude on the side of the road and they're probably going to annotate that in their notes um every state's different on what their 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 summonses look like the tickets um, but there's always a place for notes. And the reason for that is that when they, if they have to go to court, the officer is going to look at those notes because they, they, if they're stopping 20 cars a day, they're not going to remember you. You know what I mean? Uh, but they're probably going to note on there that kind of gave them some pushback, some attitude. Now, that's not illegal, but it, it's something that may get brought up if you do go to trial. And some judges don't look favorably on that. They just, they don't like it. Um, and and it's kind of what you're saying. Their, their their thought process is that's not the place to do that. Um, so my recommendation is, yeah, you don't do that. You can ask questions, and if an officer doesn't want to answer them, then shame on the officer. You know, I so many officers suffer from what I call SPS. They think it's all secret police shit. All right, can I? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And they think that they have to just like keep this, you know, like, you know, that we do this because of what we do. Um, you were speeding and, and that's that, you know. But if you have questions, ask them, you know, and and the officer should answer them, you know, to the best of their ability. Now, you can't sit there all day. You're on the side of the road. You know, you're probably screwing up traffic, you know, and, you, and the officer may have a call to go to or something, you know. So, um Feel free to ask questions. Also, feel free to go to the station afterwards and and request to see the officer and then, you know, and talk to him there. So you're not on the side of the room, right? Now, if you go in with attitude and yelling and all that, it's you're not going to get anywhere, okay? Um, they're humans, and they don't like to be yelled at, even though they're probably a little more calloused than, than most um, because they experience it so much. However, they doesn't mean they like it. Um, as far as complaints though about police officer, um, you know, I, I encourage people to, to complain. I mean, it's, um, now just know that you got to have your ducks in order, you know, your ducks in a row. Um, when you do it, you can't just go in and, you know, and say, well, I just didn't like getting the ticket. Well, then whoever you're talking to is going to say, well, that's what the court process is for, you know? 
because um, there's nothing I can do about it. Police officers have something called discretion, and most agencies respect that. You know, if that officer feels you deserve the ticket, then they're not gonna they're not gonna pull it. Um, but, but the officer has to has the obligation to defend it in court. So that officer has to go and prove it in front of a judge um, that your speed was unreasonable at the time or whatever it was. So, um, but, you know, when you go in and you complain, um, I'll file a complaint on an officer. Um, if they were rude to you, calls you a name or something along those lines, yeah, definitely, because that's how agencies know what's going on. They realize that they have these red flags. Not all agencies do, but a lot of them have these red flag systems where if they're getting, um, you know, a higher number of complaints, uh, than average on one particular officer, then there's probably something they need to look at, right? right? If if an officer has a nickname of Thumper or, you know, uh, something like that, you know, the hammer, then <laughs> that's not a good thing. That's a problem. And that's a red flag. Um, if, if you have an officer that's having to, you know, get um, uh, resupply with pepper spray way more than other officers, that's a red flag. You know, why are you using more than anyone else? You know, so, um, but my point to that is that they're not going to know, the agencies aren't going to know unless you come in and, and complain about them. Now, I also encourage people to come in and compliment officers. Um, my agency one time wanted to put these complaint forms outside the window and I advocated for, well, we should also put compliment forms out there, too, you know, so people can come in and say, you know, if an officer did a good thing, they can fill that out as well. So it's not just a mechanism to to go after the police. There's also a mechanism to compliment them. Um, so that's, that's pretty much uh, my take on, on the whole complaint thing. Um, just, a, just a side note, you know, as a, a former um, supervisor, I would take complaints that would come in. And I'll tell you that <laughs> probably eight times out of 10, the people just want to vent. Um, you know, they just, they didn't feel that they deserved the ticket, right? Or maybe they felt that the officer was a little callous out there and they just want to come in and vent. And usually I'll tell you, I don't know how many times they would say this, they'll come in and do their spiel, I would listen. And then they would say, I don't want him to get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always say that. Yeah, right. yeah, I'm done. Just let them know. Like, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I actually approached an officer. Uh, he was actually out of line at Walmart, and oh. I kind of lightly told him, "Hey, uh, can we talk about this?" Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, he, he basically copped an attitude and said, you got a problem, you go see my boss. And mm -hmm. I ended it right there. I said, all right, have a good day. And I went directly to the sheriff's department. And we we spoke with the advocate there about the incident. And the same way, I I don't want the officer to get in trouble. I want the officer to be aware that you have to know that you represent the law mm -hmm. even if you violate it a little bit in front of these people that says the law is meaningless right when we see that we expect these people to be kind of 
better than us a little bit. And of course, I know yeah. that's that's hard to expect somebody to be better, but really we have to fall back on the standards again. Mm. So, and you know what? And I always tell uh, police officers to, and, and especially, you know, the ones that are going to college who want to be police officers is to, you could always fall back on the Pelian principles. Um, do you know what those are? I'm not aware of those. All right. So the first Metropolitan Police Department was organized in, in London. The guy who kind of put it all together, his name was uh, Robert Peel. And um, he created these these principles, the Peelian principles, and there are nine of them. Uh, I encourage your listeners to look them up. And But when you read them, it boils down to this. The police are the people, and the people are the police. You are an arm of the community. You're not an arm against it. You're an arm for it. And that you, your authority, authority comes from the people, and you have to respect that. And what police officers lose sight of is that this is a service. And they, and they, you know, just like you go to a hotel and, and, and the person that greets you, you know, that, that's a service industry. Well, so is ours. It is a service industry, and you're a servant of the community. And you need to embrace that. It's what you are. You get paid to be a servant for the people. And it, it, it bugs me when I see what, what you're talking about, the police officers that get this attitude against, you know, the public. And um, it, it's wrong. It's, it's, it's absolutely a bad direction to go. I understand why it happens. Um, you know, police officers are not firemen. You know, people are happy to see firemen when they show up. <laughs> Usually people are not happy to see cops when they show up. You know, they're not happy when you pull them over. I don't think I've ever pulled anyone and pulled someone over that said, man, I'm so glad you pulled me over. <laughs> so, you know, you, you deal with a lot of negativity as a police officer, and, it, and it, it grows on you, and you can become calloused. And that's where good leaders in, in the police agency need to be able to recognize that when they see that in their officers and and take steps, you know, if anything, just talk with them and remind them that, you know, this is what you got into. This is a service industry and you need to not have that kind of calloused attitude because not everybody's an asshole. Not everyone's a bad person that you deal with out there. And so don't treat everyone the same because they're not. Yeah. Well, that brings up a real interesting point. We all have bad days. Officers mm -hmm. have bad days. Yeah. I think that if they're having a bad day, like we all work, we get sick days. Mm -hmm. I think officers should have the ability to say, hey, I'm having a bad day. I cannot deal with this today. I need a break. And right. not be punished for that. So I, I really feel that something like that being implemented would help these officers be able to relax a little more on those stressful days. I mean, and like you said, officers are probably a little more callous than the regular individual. However, there are those times when it would be better to just have the day off than to, mm -hmm. you know, approach yeah. something in a bad mannerism. Yeah, kind of like a you know a mental break day, you know, just so you can yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, most police departments have ample sick time for their officers. Um, you know, I, but I'll, I'll take it even further, Ed, is that, you know, police departments need to make sure that they're hiring people that have good emotional intelligence, that can deal with their own emotions, that can process yes. emotions and, and, and be basically civil and grown up, you know, and not resort to juvenile tactics. Um, and not get so defensive. And a lot of that comes through the hiring process. And it's not easy to kind of see that. Um, what I've been learning, though, statistically, is that police officers that have um, a college education statistically have lower complaints against them, lower use of force incidents. Um, so it, I think it speaks to their ability to deal with stress, their ability to um, to um, understand communication skills, you know, how to basically de-escalate things and not, or not make them worse, you know. So, um, yeah, I like what you're saying, that it, we should have like a mental break uh, capability for officers, but uh, also police departments need to work really hard to hire good people and, and really push for college educated. Um, actually, California, I think, just well, they introduced a bill. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's come through yet, but requiring um, a four-year degree for all police officers moving forward. And I think it's based on that study that I just uh, talked about. So um, I think that's an, an important step. It, it's important in, in what I just talked about, the statistical data, but also in professionalizing the industry a bit more. Yeah, I think temperament really plays a key role. And yes, you know, if, if you can't internally make logic of things in right. in a quick responsible way mm -hmm. you, you probably shouldn't be a police officer so yeah. i agree with that yeah well it, it i could go on and on and on for hours <laughs> with this you know but, uh i really wish your podcast would uh keep going if you can work that out i think it's a very beneficial thing to the public uh, is there any call to action you have for people? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, get educated on what's truly going on. Um, the police are not the enemy. We're not. Um, are there some bad apples? Yeah. <laughs> I actually just, just um, printed out a study that I was going to use for uh, one of my classes. And it's from this uh, Dolan group, a consulting group. And this, this one particular statistic was staggering. It's out of 2014. And it just talks about different um, data or, or numbers when it comes to types of deaths, you know, suicides, accidents, traffic accidents. But at the, if, if you look at the, the, the scale of it, on the far left, the smallest one are police shooting deaths. And in 2014, there were 990. And on the far end of the scale, in 2014, there were 251,000 deaths due to medical errors, huh. and it it just kind of I'm like, okay, are we yeah. are yeah. we barking <laughs> up the wrong tree here, you yeah. know? Um, because of those police shootings, the vast majority of them were justified, and so it, this is not the problem that the media is making this out to be. It really isn't. If you look at, if you just pay attention to the data and just get educated on what's truly happening. So those, those are my right. 
towards the people. It's just be informed as to what's truly going on out there. And, and there are sources you can find. Um, you know, I, I'll give you this one. This was Dolan Consulting Group. It's called Dispelling the Myths Around Police Use of Lethal Force. It was published in 2016. So, so yeah. hey, and great, man. Um, is it okay if I if I give out my uh, company's information? You, yes, you can. How do people find you? So, um, the, our law enforcement training company is uh, again, it's Granite State Police Career Counseling, but GSPCC is what we go by. the uh, The website is gs hyphen pcc.com again gs-pcc.com you can find us on um, instagram also on linkedin as those are the two main uh, social media platforms that we use um, i'm pretty active on on instagram i like to put a lot of a lot of funny stuff out there about police and kind of you know bring some levity to the industry um, and if you if you're a police agency and you're interested in hosting classes you can go on our website and see what we offer um and we there's some classes that we can travel to do and um we would certainly love to work with police agencies to help you uh, bring some training um to your area and uh, and enhance your your careers before i let you go uh tim i was doing some research and the cato institute did a wonderful survey and a study, complete study. I'll actually link it to this podcast episode. Okay. But it tells the people exactly what you just said. The media is inflating a lot of this. And yep. when you look at the numbers, the relations in America is not quite as bad as what people are seeing on the news. And that's right. vital that people get informed. Yep. Yeah, it's like making these large, large decisions, policy decisions, based on a tiny little snapshot. Yes. You know, what happened with George Floyd, you know, I, we could probably talk about that for a full hour as well. Yes. But the optics were horrible, and what, you know, the, the officer did there with the knee on him was not something I would do. Uh, I would never do that in a million years. Um, um, but um, that is just was one incident you know and um that is not all of law enforcement in the u.s it's just not that's right and and we have to recognize that jim it's been a pleasure talking with you about all of this and i highly recommend people getting a hold of you and looking you up thank you for being on the dead america podcast thank you so much ed i truly appreciate it man take care Thank you for listening into the podcast episode today. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. Also, please follow us on any of your podcast players. And that's going to finish up this episode of the Dead America podcast. Make sure you come back next week and follow along for another great interview. I'm Ed Waters, out.